Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Tonight, I continue the story Through the Looking Glass by Lewis Carroll. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 7 The Lion and the Unicorn The next moment, soldiers came running through the wood, at first in twos and threes, then ten or twenty together, and at last in such crowds that they seemed to fill the whole forest. Alice got behind a tree for fear of being run over and watched them go by. She thought that in all her life she had never seen soldiers so uncertain on their feet. They were always tripping over something or other, and whenever one went down, several more always fell over him, so that the ground was soon covered with little heaps of men. Then came the horses. Having four feet, these managed rather better than the foot soldiers, but even they stumbled now and then, and it seemed to be a regular rule that whenever a horse stumbled, the rider fell off instantly. The confusion got worse every moment, and Alice was very glad to get out of the wood into an open place, where she found the white king seated on the ground, busily writing in his memorandum book. I've sent them all, the king cried in a tone of delight on seeing Alice. Did you happen to meet any soldiers, my dear, as you came through the wood? Yes, I did, said Alice. Several thousand, I should think. Four thousand two hundred and seven, that's the exact number, 
the king said, referring to his book. I couldn't send all the horses, you know, because two of them are wanted in the game, and I haven't sent the two messengers either. They've both gone to the town. Just look along the road and tell me if you can see either of them. I see nobody on the road, said Alice. I only wish I had such eyes, the king remarked in a fretful tone, to be able to see nobody, and at that distance too. Why, it's as much as I can do to see real people by this light. All this was lost on Alice, who was still looking intently along the road, shading her eyes with one hand. I see somebody now, she exclaimed at last, but he's coming very slowly, and what curious attitudes he goes into. For the messenger kept skipping up and down, and wriggling like an eel as he came along, with his great hands spread out like fans on each side. Not at all, said the king. He's an Anglo-Saxon messenger, and those are Anglo-Saxon attitudes. He only does them when he's happy. His name is Hea. I love my love with an H, Alice couldn't help beginning, because he is happy. I hate him with an H, because he is hideous. I fed him with... With ham sandwiches and hay. His name is Hea. And he lives... He lives on the hill, the king remarked simply, without the least idea that he was joining in the game, while Alice was still hesitating for the name of a town beginning with H. The other messenger is called Hatta. I must have two, you know, to come and go. One to come and one to go. I beg your pardon, said Alice. It isn't respectable to beg said the king. I only meant that I didn't understand, said Alice. Why one to come and one to go? Didn't I tell you, the king repeated impatiently, I must have two to fetch and carry, one to fetch and one to carry. At this moment, the messenger arrived. He was far too much out of breath to say a word and could only wave his hands about and make the most fearful faces at the poor king. This young lady loves you with an H, the king said, introducing Alice in the hope of turning off the messenger's attention from himself. But it was no use. The Anglo-Saxon attitudes only got more extraordinary every moment, while the great eyes rolled wildly from side to side. You alarm me, said the king. I feel faint. Give me a ham sandwich. On which the messenger, to Alice's great amusement, opened a bag that hung round his neck and handed a sandwich to the king, who devoured it greedily. Another sandwich, said the king. There's nothing but hay left now, the messenger said, peeping into the bag. Hay then, the king murmured in a faint whisper. Alice was glad to see that it revived him a good deal. There's nothing like eating hay when you're faint, he remarked to her as he munched away. I should think throwing cold water over you would be better, Alice suggested or some sal volatile. I didn't say there was nothing better, the king replied. I said there was nothing like it. Which Alice did not venture to deny. Who did you pass on the road? The king went on, holding out his hand to the messenger for some hay. Nobody, said the messenger. Quite right, said the king. This young lady saw him too. So of course, nobody walks slower than you. I do my best the messenger said in a sulky tone. I'm sure nobody walks much faster than I do. He can't do that, said the king, or else he'd have been here first. However, now you've got your breath, you may tell us what happened in the town. 
I'll whisper it, said the messenger, putting his hands to his mouth in the shape of a trumpet, and stooping so as to get close to the king's ear. Alice was sorry for this, as she wanted to hear the news too. However, instead of whispering, he simply shouted at the top of his voice. They're at it again. Do you call that a whisper? cried the poor king, jumping up and shaking himself. If you do such a thing again, I'll have you buttered. It went through and through my head like an earthquake. It would have to be a very tiny earthquake, thought Alice. Who are at it again, she ventured to ask. Why, the lion and the unicorn, of course, said the king. Fighting for the crown? Yes, to be sure, said the king. And the best of the joke is that it's my crown all the while. Let's run and see them. And they trotted off, Alice repeating to herself as she ran, the words of the old song. The lion and the unicorn were fighting for the crown. The lion beat the unicorn all round the town. Some gave them white bread, some gave them brown. Some gave them plum cake and drummed them out of town. Does the one that wins get the crown? She asked, as well as she could. For the run was putting her quite out of breath. Dare me, no, said the king. What an idea. Would you be good enough? Alice panted out, after running a little further. To stop a minute, just to get one's breath again. I'm good enough, the king said. Only... I'm not strong enough. You see, a minute goes by so fearfully quick, you might as well try to stop a bandersnatch. Alice had no more breath for talking, so they trotted on in silence, till they came in sight of a great crowd, in the middle of which the lion and unicorn were fighting. They were in such a cloud of dust that at first Alice could not make out which was which, but she soon managed to distinguish the unicorn by his horn. They placed themselves close to where Hatta, the other messenger, was standing watching the fight, with a cup of tea in one hand and a piece of bread and butter in the other. He's only just out of prison, and he hadn't finished his tea when he was sent in, Haya whispered to Alice. And they only give them oyster shells in there, so you see, he's very hungry and thirsty. How are you, dear child? he went on, putting his arm affectionately around Hatta's neck. Hatta looked round and nodded and went on with his bread and butter. Were you happy in prison, dear child? said Haya. Hatta looked round once more, and this time a tear or two trickled down his cheek, but not a word would he speak. Speak, can't you? Haya cried impatiently, but Hatta only munched away and drank some more tea. Speak, won't you? cried the king. How are they getting on with the fight? Hatta made a desperate effort and swallowed a large piece of bread and butter. They're getting on very well, he said in a choking voice. Each of them has been down about 87 times. Then I suppose they'll soon bring the white bread and the brown, Alice ventured to remark. It's waiting for him now, said Hatta. This is a bit of it that I'm eating. There was a pause in the fight just then, and the lion and the unicorn sat down panting, while the king called out, Ten minutes allowed for refreshments. Haya and Hatta set to work at once, carrying rough trays of white and brown bread. Alice took a piece to taste, but it was very dry. I don't think they'll fight any more today, the king said to Hatta. Go and order the drums to begin. And Hatta went bounding away like a grasshopper. For a minute or two, Alice stood silent, watching him, 
Suddenly, she brightened up. Look, look, she cried, pointing eagerly. There's the White Queen running across the country. She came flying out of the wood over yonder. How fast those queens can run. There's some enemy after her, no doubt, the king said, without even looking round. That wood's full of them. But aren't you going to run and help her? Alice asked, very much surprised at his taking it so quietly. No use, no use, said the king. She runs so fearfully quick, you might as well try and catch a bandersnatch. But I'll make a memorandum about her, if you like. She's a dear good creature, he repeated softly to himself as he opened his memorandum book. Do you spell creature with a double E? At this moment, the unicorn sauntered by them with his hands in his pockets. I had the best of it this time, he said to the king, just glancing at him as he passed. A little, a little, the king replied rather nervously. You shouldn't have run him through with your horn, you know. It didn't hurt him, the unicorn said carelessly. And he was going on when his eye happened to fall upon Alice. He turned round rather instantly and stood for some time looking at her with an air of the deepest disgust. What is this? he said at last. This is a child, Hare replied eagerly, coming in front of Alice to introduce her, and spreading out both his hands towards her in an Anglo-Saxon attitude. We only found it today. It's as large as life and twice as natural. I always thought they were fabulous monsters, said the unicorn. Is it alive? It can talk, said Hea solemnly. The unicorn looked dreamily at Alice and said, Talk, child. Alice could not help her lips curling into a smile as she began. Do you know, I always thought unicorns were fabulous monsters too. I never saw one alive before. Well, now that we have seen each other, said the unicorn, if you believe in me, I'll believe in you. Is that a bargain? Yes, if you like, said Alice. Come, fetch out the plum cake, old man, the unicorn went on, turning from her to the king. None of your brown bread for me. Certainly, certainly, the king muttered, and beckoned to Haya. Open the bag, he whispered, quick. Not that one, that's full of hay. Haya took a large cake out of the bag and gave it to Alice to hold while he got out a dish and carving knife. How they all came out of it, Alice couldn't guess. It was just like a conjuring trick, she thought. The lion had joined them while this was going on. He looked very tired and sleepy and his eyes were half shut. What's this, he said, blinking lazily at Alice and speaking in a deep hollow tone that sounded like the tolling of a great bell. Ah, what is it now? The unicorn cried eagerly. You'll never guess. I couldn't. The lion looked at Alice wearily. Are you animal, vegetable, or mineral? He said, yawning at every word. It's a fabulous monster, the unicorn cried out before Alice could reply. Then hand round the plum cake monster, the lion said, lying down and putting his chin on his paws. And sit down, both of you to the king and the unicorn. Fair play with the cake, you know. The king was evidently very uncomfortable at having to sit down between the two great creatures, but there was no other place for him. What a fight we might have for the crown now, the unicorn said, looking slyly up at the crown, which the poor king was nearly shaking off his head. He trembled so much. I should win easily, said the lion. 
I'm not so sure of that, said the unicorn. Why, I beat you all around the town, you chicken. The lion replied angrily, half getting up as he spoke. Here the king interrupted to prevent the quarrel going on. He was very nervous, and his voice quite quivered. All round the town, he said. That's a good long way. Did you go by the old bridge or the marketplace? You get the best view by the old bridge. I'm sure I don't know, the lion growled out as he lay down again. There was too much dust to see anything. What a time the monster is, cutting up that cake. Alice had seated herself on the bank of a little brook, with a great dish on her knees, and was sawing away diligently with a knife. It's very provoking, she said, in reply to the lion. She was getting quite used to being called the monster. I've cut several slices already, but they always join on again. You don't know how to manage looking-glass cakes, the unicorn remarked. Hand it round first and cut it afterwards. This sounded nonsense, but Alice very obediently got up and carried the dish round, and the cake divided itself into three pieces as she did so. Now cut it up, said the lion, as she returned to her place with the empty dish. I say this isn't fair, cried the unicorn, as Alice sat with the knife in her hand, very puzzled how to begin. The monster has given the lion twice as much as me. She's kept none for herself, anyhow, said the lion. Do you like plum cake, monster? But before Alice could answer him, the drums began. Where the noise came from, she couldn't make out. The air seemed full of it, and it rang through and through her head till she felt quite deafened. She started to her feet and sprang across the little brook in her terror, and had just time to see the lion and the unicorn rise to their feet with angry looks of being interrupted in their feast, before she dropped to her knees and put her hands over her ears, vainly trying to shut out the dreadful uproar. If that doesn't drum him out of town, she thought to herself, nothing ever will. Chapter 8 It's My Own Invention After a while, the noise seemed gradually to die away, till all was dead silence, and Alice lifted up her head in some alarm. There was no one to be seen, and her first thought was that she must have been dreaming about the lion and the unicorn and those strange Anglo-Saxon messengers. However, there was the great dish still lying at her feet on which she had tried to cut the plum cake. So I wasn't dreaming after all, she said to herself. Unless, unless we're all part of the same dream. Only I do hope it's my dream and not the Red King's. I don't like belonging to another person's dream. She went on in a rather complaining tone. I've got a great mind to go and wake him and see what happens. At this moment, her thoughts were interrupted by a loud shouting of Ahoy, Ahoy, check. And a knight dressed in crimson armor came galloping down upon her, brandishing a great club. Just as he reached her, the horse stopped suddenly. You're my prisoner, the knight cried as he tumbled off his horse. Startled as she was, Alice was more frightened for him than for herself at the moment and watched him with some anxiety as he mounted again. As soon as he was comfortably in the saddle, he began once more, You're my... But here, another voice broke in, Ahoy, ahoy, check and Alice looked round in some surprise for the new enemy. This time, it was a white knight. He drew up at Alice's side 
and tumbled off his horse just as the red knight had done. Then he got on again, and the two knights sat and looked at each other for some time without speaking. Alice looked from one to the other in some bewilderment. She's my prisoner, you know, the red knight said at last. Yes, but then I came and rescued her, the white knight replied. Well, we must fight for her then, said the red knight, as he took up his helmet, which hung from the saddle, and was something the shape of a horse's head, and put it on. You will observe the rules of battle, of course, the white knight remarked, putting on his helmet too. I always do, said the red knight, and they began banging away at each other with such fury that Alice got behind a tree to be out of the way of the blows. I wonder now what the rules of battle are, she said to herself as she watched the fight, timidly peeping out from her hiding place. One rule seems to be that if one knight hits the other, he knocks him off his horse, and if he misses, he tumbles off himself. And another rule seems to be that they hold their clubs with their arms, as if they were Punch and Judy. What a noise they make when they tumble, just like a whole set of fire irons falling into the fender. And how quiet the horses are, They let them get on and off them just as if they were tables. Another rule of battle that Alice had not noticed seemed to be that they always fell on their heads and the battle ended with their both falling off in this way side by side. When they got up again, they shook hands and then the red knight mounted and galloped off. It was a glorious victory, wasn't it? said the white knight as he came up panting. I don't know, Alice said doubtfully. I don't want to be anybody's prisoner. I want to be a queen. So you will, when you've crossed the next brook, said the white knight. I'll see you safe to the end of the wood, and then I must go back, you know. That's the end of my move. Thank you very much, said Alice. May I help you off with your helmet? It was evidently more than he could manage by himself. However, she managed to shake him out of it at last. Now one can breathe more easily, said the knight, putting back his shaggy hair with both hands and turning his gentle face and large, mild eyes to Alice. She thought she had never seen such a strange-looking soldier in all her life. He was dressed in tin armor, which seemed to fit him very badly, and he had a strange-shaped little deal box fastened across his shoulder, upside down, and with the lid hanging open. Alice looked at it with great curiosity. I see you're admiring my little box, the knight said in a friendly tone. It's my own invention, to keep clothes and sandwiches in. You see, I carry it upside down so that the rain can't get in. But the things can get out, Alice gently remarked. Do you know the lid's open? I didn't know that, the knight said, a shade of vexation passing over his face. Then all the things must have fallen out, and the box is no use without them. He unfastened it as he spoke, and was just going to throw it into the bushes when a sudden thought seemed to strike him, and he hung it carefully on a tree. Can you guess why I did that? he said to Alice. Alice shook her head. In hopes some bees may make a nest in it, then I should get the honey. But you've got a beehive, or something like one, fastened to the saddle, said Alice. Yes, it's a very good beehive, the knight said in a discontented tone. One of the best kind, but not a single bee has come near it yet. And the other thing is a mouse trap. I suppose the mice keep the bees out, or the bees keep the mice out. I don't know which. 
I was wondering what the mouse trap was for, said Alice. It isn't very likely there would be any mice on the horse's back. Not very likely, perhaps, said the knight. But if they do come, I don't choose to have them running all about. You see, he went on after a pause, it's as well to be provided for everything. That's the reason the horse has all those anklets around his feet. But what are they for? Alice asked in a tone of great curiosity. To guard against the bites of sharks, the knight replied. It's an invention of my own. And now, help me on. I'll go with you to the end of the wood. What's the dish for? It's meant for plum cake, said Alice. We'd better take it with us, the knight said. It'll come in handy if we find any plum cake. Help me to get it into this bag. This took a very long time to manage, though Alice held the bag open very carefully because the knight was so very awkward in putting in the dish. The first two or three times that he tried, he fell in himself instead. It's rather a tight fit, you see, he said, as they got it in at last. There's so many candlesticks in the bag. And he hung it to the saddle, which was already loaded with bunches of carrots and fire irons and many other things. I hope you've got your hair well fastened, he continued as they set off. Only in the usual way, Alice said smiling. That's hardly enough, he said anxiously. You see, the wind is so very strong here. It's as strong as soup. Have you invented a plan for keeping the hair from being blown off? Alice inquired. Not yet, said the knight. But I've got a plan for keeping it from falling off. I should like to hear it very much. First, you take an upright stick, said the knight. Then you make your hair creep up it like a fruit tree. Now the reason hair falls off is because it hangs down. Things never fall upwards, you know. It's a plan of my own invention. You may try it if you like. It didn't sound a comfortable plan, Alice thought, and for a few minutes she walked on in silence, puzzling over the idea, and every now and then stopping to help the poor knight, who certainly was not a good rider. Whenever the horse stopped, which it did very often, he fell off in front, and whenever it went on again, which it generally did rather suddenly, he fell off behind. Otherwise he kept on pretty well, except that he had a habit of now and then falling off sideways, and as he generally did this on the side on which Alice was walking, she soon found that it was the best plan not to walk quite close to the horse. I'm afraid you've not had much practice in riding, she ventured to say, as she was helping him up from his fifth tumble. The knight looked very much surprised and a little offended at the remark. What makes you say that? he asked as he scrambled back into the saddle, keeping hold of Alice's hair with one hand to save himself from falling over on the other side. Because people don't fall off quite so often when they've had much practice. I've had plenty of practice, the knight said very gravely. Plenty of practice. Alice could think of nothing better to say than, indeed. But she said it as heartily as she could. They went on in a little way in silence after this the knight with his eyes shut, muttering to himself, and Alice watching anxiously for the next tumble. The great art of riding, the knight suddenly began in a loud voice, waving his right arm as he spoke, is to keep... Here the sentence ended as suddenly as it had begun, as the knight fell heavily on the top of his head 
exactly in the path where Alice was walking. She was quite frightened this time, and said in an anxious tone as she picked him up, I hope no bones are broken. None to speak of, the knight said, as if he didn't mind breaking two or three of them. The great art of riding, as I was saying, is to keep your balance properly, like this, you know. He let go the bridle and stretched out both his arms to show Alice what he meant, and this time he fell flat on his back, right under the horse's feet. Plenty of practice, he went on repeating, all the time that Alice was getting him on his feet again. Plenty of practice. It's too ridiculous, cried Alice, losing all her patience this time. You ought to have a wooden horse, on wheels. Does that kind go smoothly? The knight asked in a tone of great interest, clasping his arms round the horse's neck as he spoke, just in time to save himself from tumbling off again. Much more smoothly than a live horse, Alice said, with a little scream of laughter, in spite of all she could do to prevent it. I'll get one, the knight said thoughtfully to himself. One or two. Several. There was a short silence after this, and then the knight went on again. I'm a great hand at inventing things. Now, I dare say you noticed, that the last time you picked me up, that I was looking rather thoughtful. You were a little grave, said Alice. Well, just then I was inventing a new way of getting over a gate. Would you like to hear it? Very much indeed, said Alice, politely. I'll tell you how I came to think of it, said the knight. You see, I said to myself, The only difficulty is with the feet. The head is high enough already. Now, first I put my head on the top of the gate. Then I stand on my head. Then the feet are high enough, you see. Then I'm over, you see. Yes, I suppose you'd be over when that was done, Alice said thoughtfully. But don't you think it would be rather hard? I haven't tried it yet, the knight said gravely, so I can't tell for certain. But I'm afraid it would be a little hard. He looked so vexed at the idea that Alice changed the subject hastily. What a curious helmet you've got, she said cheerfully. Is that your invention too? The knight looked down proudly at his helmet, which hung from the saddle. Yes, he said, but I've invented a better one than that, like a sugar loaf. When I used to wear it, if I fell off the horse, it always touched the ground directly. So I had a very little way to fall, you see. But there was the danger of falling into it, to be sure. That happened to me once. And the worst of it was, before I could get out again, the other white knight came and put it on. He thought it was his own helmet. The knight looked so solemn about it that Alice did not dare to laugh. I'm afraid you must have hurt him, she said in a trembling voice, being on the top of his head. I had to kick him, of course, the knight said very seriously. And then he took the helmet off again, but it took hours and hours to get me out. I was as fast as as lightning, you know. But that's a different kind of fastness, Alice objected. The knight shook his head. It was all kinds of fastness with me, I can assure you, he said. He raised his hands in some excitement as he said this, and instantly rolled out of the saddle and fell headlong into a deep ditch. Alice ran to the side of the ditch to look for him. She was rather startled by the fall, as for some time he had kept on very well, and she was afraid that he really was hurt this time. However, though she could see nothing but the soles of his feet, she was much relieved to hear that he was talking on in his usual tone. All kinds of fastness, he repeated, but it was careless of him to put another man's helmet on, 
with a man in it too. How can you go on talking so quietly, head downwards, Alice asked, as she dragged him out by the feet and laid him in a heap on the bank. The knight looked surprised at the question. What does it matter where my body happens to be, he said. My mind goes on working all the same. In fact, the more head downwards I am, the more I keep inventing new things. Now the cleverest thing of the sort that I ever did, he went on after a pause, was inventing a new pudding during the meat course. In time to have it cooked for the next course, said Alice. Well, that was quick work, certainly. Well, not the next course, the knight said in a slow, thoughtful tone. No, certainly not the next course. Then it would have to be the next day. I suppose you wouldn't have two pudding courses in one dinner. Well, not the next day, the knight repeated as before. Not the next day. In fact, he went on, holding his head down and his voice getting lower and lower. I don't believe that pudding ever was cooked. In fact, I don't believe that pudding ever will be cooked. And yet, it was a very clever pudding to invent. What did you mean it to be made of? Alice asked, hoping to cheer him up, for the poor knight seemed quite low-spirited about it. It began with blotting paper, the knight answered with a groan. That wouldn't be very nice, I'm afraid. Not very nice alone, he interrupted quite eagerly. But you've no idea what a difference it makes mixing it with other things, such as gunpowder and sealing wax. And here, I must leave you. They had just come to the end of the wood. Alice could only look puzzled. She was thinking of the pudding. You are sad, the knight said in an anxious tone. Let me sing a song to comfort you. Is it very long? Alice asked, for she had heard a good deal of poetry that day. It's long, said the knight, but very, very beautiful. Everybody that hears me sing it, either it brings the tears into their eyes or else. Or else what? said Alice, for the knight had made a sudden pause. Or else it doesn't, you know. The name of the song is called Haddock's Eyes. Oh, that's the name of the song, is it? Alice said, trying to feel interested. No, you don't understand, the knight said, looking a little vexed. That's what the name is called. The name really is the aged, aged man. Then it ought to have said, that's what the song is called, Alice corrected herself. No, you oughtn't. That's quite another thing. The song is called Ways and Means. But that's only what it's called, you know. Well, what is the song then, said Alice, who was by this time completely bewildered. I was coming to that, the knight said. The song really is a sitting on a gate, and the tune's my own invention. So saying, he stopped his horse and let the reins fall on its neck, then slowly beating time with one hand, with a faint smile lighting up his gentle, foolish face, as if he enjoyed the music of his song, he began. Of all the strange things that Alice saw in her journey through the looking glass, this was the one that she always remembered most clearly. Years afterwards, she could bring the whole scene back again, as if it had only been yesterday. The mild blue eyes and kindly smile of the night, the setting sun gleaming through his hair, and shining on his armor in a blaze of light that quite dazzled her. The horse quietly moving about, with the reins hanging loose on his neck, cropping the grass at her feet. And the black shadows of the forest behind. All this she took in like a picture, 
as with one hand shading her eyes, she leaned against a tree, watching the strange pair and listening, in a half-dream, to the melancholy music of the song. But the tune isn't his own invention, she said to herself. It's, I give thee all, I can no more. She stood and listened very attentively, but no tears came into her eyes. I'll tell thee everything I can, there's little to relate. I saw an aged, aged man, a sitting on a gate. Who are you, aged man, I said, and how is it you live? And his answer trickled through my head, like water through a sieve. He said, I look for butterflies that sleep among the wheat. I make them into mutton pies and sell them in the street. I sell them unto men, he said, who sail on stormy seas. And that's the way I get my bread, a trifle, if you please. But I was thinking of a plan to dye one's whiskers green and always use so large a fan that they could not be seen. So having no reply to give to what the old man said, I cried, come. Tell me how you live, and thumped him on the head. His accents mild took up the tale. He said, I go my ways, and when I find a mountain rill, I set it on a blaze. And thence they make a stuff they call Roland's Macassar oil. Yet tuppence, haypenny is all they give me for my toil. But I was thinking of a way to feed oneself on batter, and so go on from day to day, getting a little fatter. I shook him well from side to side until his face was blue. Come, tell me how you live, I cried, and what it is you do. He said, I hunt for haddock's eyes among the heather bright and work them into waistcoat buttons in the silent night. And these I do not sell for gold or coin of silvery shine, but for a copper halfpenny, and that will purchase nine. I sometimes dig for buttered rolls or set lime twigs for crabs. I sometimes searched the grassy knolls for wheels of handsome cabs. And that's the way, he gave a wink, by which I get my wealth. And very gladly will I drink your honour's noble health. I heard him then, for I had just completed my design, to keep the menide bridge from rust by boiling it in wine. I thanked him much for telling me the way he got his wealth, but chiefly for his wish that he might drink my noble health. And now, if e'er by chance I put my fingers into glue, or madly squeeze a right-hand foot into a left-hand shoe, or if I drop upon my toe a very heavy weight, I weep, for it reminds me so, of that old man I used to know, whose look was mild, whose speech was slow, whose hair was whiter than the snow, whose face was very like a crow, with eyes like cinders all aglow who seemed distracted with his woe, who rocked his body to and fro, and muttered mumblingly and low, as if his mouth were full of dough, who snorted like a buffalo that summer evening long ago, a-sitting on a gate. As the knight sang the last words of the ballad, he gathered up the reins and turned his horse's head along the road by which they had come. You've only a few yards to go, he said, down the hill, and over that little brook, and then you'll be a queen. But you'll stay and see me off first, he added, as Alice turned with an eager look in the direction to which he pointed. I shan't be long. You'll wait and wave your handkerchief when I get to that turn in the road. I think it'll encourage me, you see. Of course I'll wait, said Alice, and thank you very much for coming so far. 
and for the song. I liked it very much. I hope so, the knight said doubtfully. But you didn't cry so much as I thought you would. So they shook hands, and then the knight rode slowly away into the forest. It won't take long to see him off, I expect, Alice said to herself, as she stood watching him. There he goes, right on his head as usual. However, he gets on again pretty easily. That comes of having so many things hung round the horse. So she went on, talking to herself, as she watched the horse walking leisurely along the road, and the knight tumbling off, first on one side and then on the other. After the fourth or fifth tumble, he reached the turn, and then she waved her handkerchief to him and waited till he was out of sight. I hope it encouraged him, she said, as she turned to run down the hill. And now, for the last brook, and to be a queen. How grand it sounds. A very few steps brought her to the edge of the brook. The eighth square, at last, she cried, as she bounded across, and threw herself down to rest on a lawn as soft as moss, with little flower beds dotted about here and there. Oh, how glad I am to get here. And what is this on my head? she exclaimed in a tone of dismay as she put her hands up to something very heavy and fitted tight all round her head. But how can it have got there without my knowing it, she said to herself as she lifted it off and set it on her lap to make out what it could possibly be. It was a golden crown. Good night.